what looks a bit like an ice cream takes hours to build, and when it's done, you can live in it. This week on Download This Show, going inside 3D printed houses. What does that actually mean for the future of dwellings? Also, Apple and Facebook go to war over who can track your behaviour online. Plus, loot boxes in video games. Are they a little too close to gambling to go unregulated? And can a Chinese news aggregation app save local news worldwide? All that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And Ray Johnson from Queens of the Drone Age, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. If you haven't heard it yet, Queens of the Drone Age, it is a podcast. It is. It is is about technology. It's very good. Thank you, Mark. And also we have Dr. Emily Vandenagel, lecturer in social media at Monash University. First time on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Mark. So there's a few things to get through on the show this week. I want to start with the Four Corners that went out this week on the ABC was a sort of an insight into the world of gaming and the various maladies associated with it. It dealt with a lot of different things, but I think the one thing that's probably really worth digging into is this concept of loot boxes, right? So, Ray, what exactly is a loot box? So a a loot box is kind of like a lucky dip in a video game. So when when you're playing games, there's the option sometimes in some of them to buy things within the game. So they might be items that, you know, it might be a hat, it might be a sword, it might be a horse. In this case, it's a mystery box and you, know, you could get the highest possible prize Which is a, out of a this horse box. with a sword and a hat. Absolutely. You could get the horse with the sword and the hat or you could just get the sword or the hat. But you're guaranteed to get something. Mm. So it's kind of in that way a bit of a mystery as to what you will receive. And there has been been some criticism because, you know, these loot boxes, while they are by no means in every game, Mm. they are in a lot of games. And some of the mechanics involved in loot boxes can be reminiscent of gambling. Right. So they can look and sound and feel like gambling. And for people who want to avoid that, it can be a bit of a problem because in this country in particular, loot boxes aren't something that are readily disclosed when you are purchasing a game or downloading a game. You don't really know that they're going to be in it until Mm. you've already bought it. So avoiding them can be tricky. Emily, there's been a lot of criticism of of loot boxes on, I guess, a conceptual level. For you, what do you think is the right way to think about them? I mean, I think, you know, this idea that they're a bit like a lucky dip interesting because as Ray suggests, this is a, it's a chance kind of thing. You know, you don't know exactly what you're getting when you purchase the loot box, but the way that I think it gives you, you know, that same kind of intermittent reward that things like poker machines and, and you know, indeed the whole setup of gambling does, does actually introduce some quite insidious elements into uh, something that is largely about chance. And I think especially because microtransactions are involved every time somebody is entering the loot box kind of part of the game, you know, they're exchanging money for something that might be valuable, might not be. That kind of thing can turn into a problem. There is obviously some and it's hard to talk about an aggregate because obviously like different games have different forms, right? So I'm mindful of that. But at the same time, Ray, 
There is a degree of whimsy and joy you can get from the I don't know what's in there. I get that. And I can also understand how that sort of has some touch points similar to gambling. Where is it that you find, in your view, loot boxes start to edge into an unethical space and where are they actually a perfectly fine part of, of gaming culture? Are there things that you look for in that line? I I think for me it really is about, you know, the the look and the feel and the sound of them. Like are they trying to emulate uh, what you would find in a casino or are they just l- literally a fun little box that you come across and you open it and there's a there's a prize or a surprise in it? Is it something that could be edging towards, you know, normalizing more traditional types of gambling or is it something that looks nothing like that whatsoever and just kind of borrows some of the mechanics? I think that's where the ethical line really stands for me. But I think you know, one, one of the things that's really important with loot boxes is that it is possible to regulate them and they are regulated in other countries. So you have countries like Belgium that have banned them entirely. In China, they have limits on how many loot boxes you can open in a day. Mm. So it's like 25 boxes in a day so that you don't you know, create a habit out of it, that it doesn't take over the core gaming experience. Because this is one small part of a bigger game. It's not just a game you go into and open up boxes. And there's also a lot of classification systems in other countries, you know, across Europe and the US that have that little you know, consumer advice and information underneath the ratings. So it's like may contain loot boxes. Exactly. And it says... <laughs> Adult themes and loot boxes. May contain loot boxes, but it also shows you the probability that you will receive that really valued prize that you're after within that oh. loot box, like how gambling has to show you the odds. And for us, we could implement this system here in Australia as well. It would be up to our classification system in order to bring it in. Dr. Emily, do you think that's something we should explore? I feel like giving people more information about what they're consuming, you know, that's always a good thing, really. And with loot boxes, it it does depend on, as Ray suggests, like what kind of gaming experience that somebody's entering into. If you're a parent trying to make a, a good decision about what to give your children or how to talk to your children about the, the game that they might be entering into, it might be really important that you know what's in the game and if that loot box element comes into it, especially if the loot box is trying to um, ask you or ask your children or people in your family to part with money to get a prize that may be valuable and might not be. Ultimately, you want to be more informed. You want to be more informed as a user, but I think, you know, particularly as a parent, I know your son is a massive gamer, Ray. Like, you do just want to know. Like, you want to have, you want to understand it because if you don't understand it, I think the impulse for lots of parents is just to be like, no, yeah. no. And I think that it kind of does us potentially a disservice. That's really sad because games are great. You know, and games can be a really important part of kids' lives and, you know, they can really enrich them in many lots of different ways. I I love games and I love kids being able to play games. But as you say, there needs to be an ability for parents to be able to make informed decisions and, you know... In an ideal world, we'd be able to sit down with our kids for every single game that they're playing, you know, have conversations with them, you know, examine what they're playing. But in reality, that doesn't always happen. So being able to have some sort of labelling system makes a lot of sense. It's also worth saying that, you know, every console, you know, most most, uh, mobile phone devices as well, offer the ability to turn off in-app purchases Mm. in games. So you can just 
turn this function off entirely. Your kids can't spend any money within the game. Uh, that still doesn't stop their exposure to loot boxes that don't cost money within yeah. games, though, because it's not always about money. You know, there, there are loot box systems that exist within games that are just there and they're just part of a reward system within the game. But, yeah, if it's about money, you can turn that off. Can you do that on all platforms? Yeah, you yeah, can right. do it on platforms. That's Yeah, Xbox has got a whole family setting system. PlayStation's got it. iOS, you can do it. Google Play, you can do it in. So, yeah, you can go into those settings and make sure that your kids can't accidentally spend $4,000 on <laughs> loot boxes without your knowledge. Yeah, and that obviously came about because parents were complaining. And you know, even with the things that you're buying in game, like like loot boxes, like other little items, you're still protected under Australian consumer law as well. So if you've purchased something and you think that you've been ripped off or you're unhappy with it in any way, you do have recourse. Dr. Emily, what would you like to change about the way games are classified, the sort of consumer information you get when you buy? I think... I mean, you know, more information means that we can make better choices. So, uh, for example, just um, giving the option or, or at least illustrating to people that there might be an option to turn off in-game purchases, that's information that I think people can really use. So trying to, you know, incorporate not just the classification in terms of, you know, is this appropriate for children? Um, does this contain, you know, like horror themes, violent themes? The more prepared you are before you're going to sit down with, with any piece of media, the better your experience is going to be. And I think especially for children, you know, classification systems, they're not necessarily about denying kids the ability to do things like play the games they like, watch the movies they like, but it gives some indication of what's going to be part of that experience. And this can really help drive conversations around, you know, um, might this be scary? Uh, might you need to think about what in-game purchases you're making, for example? I feel like if those conversations happen, everyone's happier when it gets to the point where they're, you know, really immersed or really, really engaged with the media experience. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week are Dr. Emily Vandernagel from Monash University and Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. Mark Fennell's my name. That hasn't changed. Uh, and has Apple killed the world of ad tracking? That has been uh, chucked up this week. Uh, there's been a new version of Apple's operating system for their mobile devices, it has the potential to have a pretty sizable impact on how you are tracked as a user, which of course has impacts on advertisers and the big social media companies like your Facebook. So exactly what's happened, Ray? Yeah, Apple, uh, they just want you to use their own ad tracking <laughs> platform, basically, <laughs> is, is how it kind of goes. Now, Apple have made it so that you have to opt in to allow you know, sites like Facebook, for example, to be able to track your device and all of the other websites and, and places that you visit while you're using that device. It is worth noting that this isn't something that is across all devices. So it's just that device. Facebook can still find where you're going if you log onto a desktop at work or, or use your laptop. But really, it's limiting the amount of data that is available to advertisers on you know, social media platforms, for example, to be able to target you with ads. And it stops them from being able to pass that information on to third parties that track you all over the internet and see what other things that you like. Uh, pretty soon after this update was rolled out, Emily, Facebook changed a warning sign on their app when you would log in 
and uh, it would ask, it would literally ask you to turn on uh, data tracking for them. And one of the reasons they put forward was it was to help keep Facebook free of charge. It's a total scare tactic. I, I can't see Facebook ever really going back on this in any kind of meaningful way. Mm. I, I think they will try to argue the whole, oh, we've got a free site, but we've also got a subscription site. I can't see them really ever adopting this model because there's also implications. Oh, I would pay. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I would pay <laughs> to never have to deal with Facebook's, like, weird ad tracking. Like, that is that is a certain, like if not purely just to pay for a repository of all the pictures I posted in 2011. Ooh. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's the main reason I haven't gotten rid of a Facebook account is because it has all these photos. But that... couldn't you just download all those photos? Right. Pop, pop I've got them four in like... jobs and two kids. I'm not doing that. <laughs> pop them in like a Google <laughs> Photos you know, cloud service and pay for that per <laughs> month and don't deal with Facebook. <gasps> I mean, look, the, Apple have always made a big deal out of their sort of privacy credentials. Dr. Emily, what is in this for them? Like, why are they so interested in, in what is, for all intents and purposes, hobbling Facebook? Like, what, what is in it for Apple? Well, firstly, trying to tap into the way people are increasingly demanding privacy and trust is a fantastic PR move. If Apple can position itself as listening to consumer demand and, and also to various organisations like, you know, the, the Electronic Frontier Foundation in Australia, the Digital Rights Watch, if you listen to what these organisations are putting out, they're always calling for increased transparency, increased privacy. And if Apple is seen to be responding to that, right, it makes them look like a a kind of operating system and indeed technology company that people can trust. There's a lot in that. But of course, what this is doing is simply trying to make moves to lock even more people into the system that they have so that uh, they're trying to kind of make sure that people's experience of the whole internet, and if not, then at least their sort of smartphone experience from beginning to end, starts and ends with Apple. So it's a real takeover move, I think, and it just shows you how much Apple as a company is trying to be people's entry point into technology in so many ways. I'm curious about that, though. How is it How is it ensuring that you stay in the Apple wall garden? Is it, Or is it just like adding value for people that are already there? Like, is there anything about it that I'm just trying to understand how it, how it keeps people in that world beyond the fact that it's like, it's another feature that people may or may not like? If Apple is able to communicate that privacy and trust and transparency are part of its consumer ethos and part of its brand and indeed part of its experience, I feel like it's pulling people ever closer to Apple as a way that they come to technology. And this doesn't come across as disingenuous for Mm. Apple either because it's not new for them. They've always talked about privacy and security and, you know, looking after their users' data above all else, you know, to to the point where they'll have full court cases where, you know, law enforcement want them to hack into things and they just go, no. This might seem like a weird question, but Apple is in the middle of something of a long-term transition, right? So obviously they've been a hardware company for a really long time. They have always had software components, obviously iOS. But in the last couple of years, there's moved also into sort of being a content company. So you've got Apple TV Plus and you've got Arcade and you've got all these other things. And we're now talking about, you know, building a structure within the Apple podcast universe where podcasters can get paid. So they're they're sort of transitioning into also being a company for whom 
user data, user behaviour is actually starting to become really valuable. Are they digging themselves a bit of a hole here where in the future they're actually potentially going to want some of this stuff, Ray? Potentially. But if they're keeping it within the company, if they're keeping it within the Apple ecosystem to just continually serve you the things that they know that you want within that kind of walled garden and that protected experience, I don't think that's out of step with their ethos in any way. Okay. You know, they, they have obviously moved a lot more to providing services than devices because people are purchasing more subvert services than devices. And you can subscribe to services. Absolutely. <laughs> you buy one device every two years, right? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, it's a smart move from Apple, to be honest. And, you know, now we're all going to have AirTags as well <laughs> attached to our non-Apple products that are going to be beeping around our houses. So, look, there's a lot more data being collected by Apple than ever before. But what they're doing with that data... It's 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 difficult to say, but we do know that they're not passing it on to third parties and nefarious people, so I suppose that's a good thing. Maybe. Download this show is what you're listening to. Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast and Dr Emily Van Den Nagel from Monash University are our guests this week, and it's been called the Chinese news media app that could potentially save Western news organisations. It's called Newsbreak. Emily, can you explain exactly what it is for me, please? So we've seen in um, in Australia and indeed a, a little further afield the the rise of TikTok recently, right? Mm. Um, we understand that to be a uh, a short video platform that algorithmically generates content based on the content you already view. Now, if you take these principles and apply them to news, we're looking at. Um, at this app, at Newsbreak, right, which is currently hitting the US market in a really big way. People, a lot of people are downloading it. And it uses those same principles. It's trying to see what people read, see what they pay attention to, and then use artificial intelligence to serve them more of that content. Isn't that kind of what certainly Facebook and things like that already do, right? It sure is, Mark. It's kind of like the early days of YouTube where it just showed you what you'd already seen and you ended up going down a rabbit hole of This is how I became a white supremacist. Fun yeah, fact. Yeah, 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 me too. Um, so <laughs> For context, Ray and I brown. <laughs> We're both brown. <laughs> it's a joke that you needed visuals for. <laughs> Carry on. Um, yeah, no, look, anything that's using artificial intelligence is using a, a data set based on your previous behaviour. And if when you're just using only your previous behaviour to inform your future behaviour, you're creating a literal bubble of content. Even worse than when you curate your Twitter feed or your Facebook to only be the kinds of things that you want to see. And for this to be what is driving a news a news aggregator to deliver you information about what's happening in the entire world could be essentially pretty problematic. Mm. I mean, I guess there are a lot of apps that kind of algorithmically serve you content that it thinks you like, but I think one of the key parts of a good algorithm is that it it kind of levels you up a little bit. Like it offers you something. It knows you kind of like this, but here's a slightly new version yeah. of it. Is there any sense, Emily, that this is getting that equation right 
It's, I, I feel like it's too early to say for this particular app, but we definitely know more broadly that when it comes to personalised content, there's this fear that people will end up in filter bubbles, right? That hyper-personalisation means that every individual is only seeing a very small sliver of the content that's out there. People are being really concerned about this for some time. Um, and I feel like especially because this is a news app, if we think about TikTok as purely entertainment, um, then maybe it doesn't seem so insidious. But if people are looking to news break for their headlines of the day and it only serves them very specific things, is there a danger there? I feel like not immediately. We know that people have a very broad kind of consumption of media. I don't think that just because people have downloaded the Newsbreak app that that's going to be the only place they get their news from. But there's something to suggest that this hyper-personalisation can get people pretty focused in on you know, as a very specific kind of content. For Newsbreak, they're actually trying to plug that as a positive. They're saying the thing missing from a lot of news information that gets tailored to people is that they're missing out on that local context. You know, they're, they're always heading into those really big news platforms. Mm. So for Newsbreak to say, sure, this is personalised, it's also highly contextualised. It gives you some of that local news information that people might be missing. Really, I think um, that's something that they could highlight as a as a positive in terms of the way that people are increasingly fragmented. I think one of the issues with Newsbreak is it's not just collecting news from trusted news sources. Mm. It's aggregating material from all over the internet, whether they're you know, verified news sources or not. So sprinkled in with your, your mix of legitimate news is just a random blog that further reinforces your worldview. Right. And I have difficulty accepting that that's going to have positive ramifications further down the track. Well, particularly if you sandwich it in between quote-unquote legitimate um, new services, it has a tendency to kind of elevate absolutely, yeah, to that level. And then when you think about their actual goals for their organisation and for their technology was basically to be able to see how they could manipulate what viewers saw. People just thought of it as a social media platform. Woohoo, you know, Woo. great entertainment. And then they're like, no, 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 no. We're actually an artificial intelligence company. We are a data collection artificial intelligence company uh, making these algorithms and making them as precise as we possibly can. And you know, they were conducting a whole lot of experiments on the platform as to user behaviour and how that could be influenced to have certain outcomes or just to see where it ended up leading. So to have that kind of technology in charge of something as important as news mm. is a little bit problematic for me. Also, I think about the the sheer amount of data that they're collecting now from your news habits and you know, when we've got a company that could potentially be beholden to you know, Chinese data laws, meaning that the Chinese government could ask to see that data at any point in time and no obligation to tell you that it has shown or handed over that data to the Chinese government, it, it raises other ethical questions as well. Look, I don't think it's an overwhelmingly negative app. I'm just always a little bit cautious when we're using artificial intelligence to inform our daily lives. Uh, but, you know, the benefits that there have been to publishers are enormous, especially at times when there's been, you know, really heavily reduced income 
going to a lot of online sites with a lack of advertising. So, hey, if, you, if you're going to get a 700% increase in click-throughs to a really important local news story by using this app, then yeah, that's great. But let's just be realistic and careful about you know, who we're trusting with our personal information. And lastly, here on Download This Show, we are going to the Netherlands. Dr. Emily van der Nagel, tell me what they built in the Netherlands because it amazes me. They've done it. The first... <laughs> 3D printed house. Um, basically, there's a nozzle that squirts out cement like whipped cream um, and it's come together at last to actually build a house that's uh, so structurally integral that people are now living in it. I mean, like once you've said ice cream, that's kind of all I can visualise because it does kind <laughs> of look like a house made out of Vianetta. It's a big rock. <laughs> rock. It's a big rock made out of 3D printed concrete and it is glorious and people are renting it and I love this so much and I think it's like this is the first legal house that people have been allowed to actually move into and live in that was 3D printed. But we've been making 3D printed houses and shelters for quite a few years mm. now, you know, out of a various range of different materials. There was a, a house a few years back that was able to be 3D printed in 24 hours, which is perfect for emergency shelter situations if you can get a giant 3D printer on site. That's always the part of this story that I get lost <laughs> with. It's like, okay, cool. So a disaster's happened. We can't get food or water in there but you want to get a giant 3D printer in there to build houses. How does Absolutely. that work? Um, so tell me, what is the, um, Dr. Emily, like wh what was the, what were they trying to prove with this project? Well, basically that this is viable, that, that you can set up manufacturing in this way so that you can, uh, you know, firstly design a house that has a lot of potential to, um, you know, to, to incorporate natural elements into the design, like Grace is saying, it looks like a big rock. Um, it's really, it's really great. It that reminds it me can... of a house from the Flintstones. Yes. It's taken me a while to realise it, but like that's kind of, because it's kind of, it's a bit, it's not a dome, but it's, it's a bit, looks like it's made out of plasticine. Which is really great, I think, because um, it, it does so much to remind us that 3D printing is an emerging technology and there's so much potential for it. In fact, it's really worth playing with because that playful element, you know, it looks like a Flintstones house. It looks like you've made it out of ice cream. I think that that is such a, a great way to spark imagination about the possibilities of this technology um, if it reduces environmental impact and reduces our consumption of resources at the same time, so much so the better. Does it actually reduce our, yeah. our, our, our resources, right? Yeah, it does. It, it uses significantly less concrete than if we did this in a traditional way. You know, prefabricated houses aren't anything new. No. You know, we, we've all seen buildings go up in a record amount of time just using big slabs of concrete that have been made in a factory somewhere. You know, this house was made in much the same way, but using the 3D printing process and the type of concrete that they were able to use, they, they could design it in such a way that it had the structural integrity and the strength that it needed without all of the extra materials. Also, there's the added bonus. 
bonus <laughs> might not be um, that it didn't really require a whole lot of human labour. So this house <laughs> I love was, how tentative you're like, good but also bad. Good but also robots taking jobs. Uh, yeah, you didn't need any bricklayers for this. So it was made in around 120 hours, I believe, because it was able to be printing day and night. It just needed a little bit of maintenance at one point. One of the, the nozzle needed to be replaced with a new nozzle. And you can actually <laughs> see in the wall of the building where they needed to do that. They changed like the nozzle. Where they had to change the nozzle. It's like a little imperfect. Would you live in this house? Oh, absolutely. Living in an ice cream house. <laughs> true. I've just realised I've like I've ch- I've chucked out so many different analogies. It's like the ice cream house, the Flintstone house, the Viennette house. It's like I've picked too many things. I'd live there just to experience it, really. I think it'd be fun. All right. That is all we've got time for. Dr. Emily Vandenagel from Monash University, thank you so much for coming on Download the Show. It was such a joy to have you here. Please come back and do it again. I'd love to. Excellent. And Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, thank you so much for coming back. Anytime, Mark. And if you enjoyed hearing Ray Johnson's voice, you should definitely check out Queens of the Drone Age podcast. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. <laughs>